When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. As a new Western Union customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee on your first international online money transfer. Send money to your loved ones back home the fast, easy, and reliable way. Visit westernunion.com or download their app today to get started. And your first transfer fee is free. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983, or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985, FX Gain Supply. The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, Ray Coob on a four-way Zoom call. It's going to be an interesting one today, Marcus. Marcus in the Darkest, my uh, co-host and partner in crime. Hello, everybody. How are you? And joining us from the Owsley Foundation, we have two people, Pete Bell, and they call you the Hawk. How'd you get the nickname Hawk? (laughs) Is it a long story? story? It's a long story. Yeah, no, and frankly, a very uninteresting story. But it was a college name. It was a nickname that I went by back when I, I knew Bear when I was a teenager. And, uh, you know, it's funny, in my professional life, most people call me Bill, but uh, with the surge of interest in the foundation, my nickname has come back because everybody that I knew that was associated with Bear knew me by the nickname Hawk when I was in college. So it's a nice turn of events. I prefer it to boring old Bill. And let's make it clear to everybody who Bear is. He is Owsley, famously the sound man for the Grateful Dead, one of the most famous chemists in uh, the 60s. And uh, so if you're wondering if it's that Owsley, that is who we're talking about. But he was an audiologist, man. The guy had an ear for sound about recording it and also for putting it out there in a way live that is legendary with the wall of sound and stuff and years on the road with the Grateful Dead. That's only partly why we're here, though, because you guys work with the Owsley Foundation to preserve what he recorded and that's a lot right yeah we have uh 1300 reels that uh he recorded when he was a sound man for the grateful dead and then beyond and there are more than 80 artists reflected in this collection i think it's important to emphasize that it was never made with any intention to be commercially exploited these were you know we describe owsley's sacred trust with the artists that he recorded they knew that he was recording to help him become a better sound man so it was like tools in his toolbox that he used to be able to hear the differences in sound from hall to hall and he would listen to them if he had any sway over the band like the Grateful Dead or occasionally Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna he'd have them sit down and listen to them as well to try to improve their playing and so that's why we have the tapes and then uh, it turns out that much later in life Owsley looked at this collection of tapes and thought well wow these have real 
historical significance. And people may want these to teach, to study, to remember some of the lost moments in our collective shared musical history and instructed his children before he died to, you know, he wasn't able to finish the project, barely able to start it, frankly. And he asked them to finish the project if anything should interfere with his ability to complete it. And now releasing the tapes that have been restored is helping to pay for the restoration of more of the tapes and keeping the foundation's mission going. And it's got to be made clear that all of you do this completely out of your passion for the mission of the project, the, the foundation's work itself, that you all work other jobs and do other things in the world besides work on the Owsley Foundation, which is a noble cause in and of itself because these tapes, just based on what I've already heard and what I heard from the Johnny Cash Carousel recording, they've got to be saved for all posterity. And digitization these days is a process that can eternalize it, but it also is... Expensive. So as, as you've learned and as you know, also joining us on uh, the podcast this week is Pete Bell. You've been involved in the process as a producer and you're a member of the foundation's board as well. What has been one of the biggest challenges you've faced in general, but also in regards to preserving and releasing this Johnny Cash, June Carter Cash edition? The hardest part is letting the fans understand why it can take a long time to produce a record from the tapes. So we're actually doing pretty nicely preserving the tapes. We've preserved over 800 reels now, and we've produced eight albums from the tapes, which to us feels pretty fast, but to the fans, I think feels slow. And in particular, this Johnny Cash album, believe it or not, this took three years to produce. That gives you a sense for just how many moving pieces go into one single production. I have a question for both of you, and you both may be able to answer this. In regards to the tapes and everything that the bear left behind, were there notebooks filled with diagrams, and were there notebooks filled with, like, soundboard drawings and notes for each band and for each performance and how he did things? Did you have that type of a background to work off of as well in the research aspect of this project? He left very little in the form of written notes on any of the tapes or even the tape boxes themselves. There's one that we posted on our website where he had clearly written detailed notes on the inside portion of the Ampex box cover over top of the standard print that's inside that tells you about the product. He wrote over top of that detailed descriptions that I couldn't follow, frankly, but that was the only one that sort of stands out. It's effusive praise if he put a star on it or if he put some exclamation points. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, he would have a comment like weird. (laughs) And, you know, Starfinder tells the story of having him pick up a box that said weird on the back, and he said, might be good, might be bad, I don't know. What was the biggest surprise you guys have found so far going through the tapes and went, oh, my God, can you believe what we have? Oh, man. (laughs) Every release has one of those on it. You know, I I keep going back to the Yorma and Jack release, uh, Yorma Kalkinen and, and Jack Cassidy. This was a recording just when they were sort of at the peak of the Jefferson Airplane experience, branching out on their own before they called themselves Hot Tuna. And they played a two-night back-to-back gigs with Grateful Dead and Cleanliness and Godliness Skiffle Band. And there were a whole bunch of gems found all over all of those artists' sets because Jerry Garcia sat in on Pedal Steel with Cleanliness and Godliness Skiffle Band, played 
the Buck Owen Tunes A11. And then he stayed on pedal steel and the Grateful Dead opened with Slewfoot. Then he closed on pedal steel with Greengrass at Home. Then there was a drum duet. And then Yorman Jack closed the show. And the Yorman Jack was all electric with Joey Covington on drums. And there were four tracks that were extended jams that some of them had familiar lines like Turnaround is obviously three-fifths of a mile and 10 seconds done as an instrumental jam for 12 minutes. But there were four tracks that had to be named for the first time for this release by Yorman Jack because they hadn't been, two of them were adapted for other songs, but they'd basically been sitting in a shelf in the Grateful Dead's vault for 50 plus years until we found them. Oh my God. Mind fucking blown already, yeah. Marcus. You know. One of my favorites, I have a favorite, which is a spin out of the Johnny Cash. So Johnny Cash, you can hear him from the siege. He says, we have a very distinguished gentleman in the audience tonight. Mr. Gordon Lightfoot introduces a young Gordon Lightfoot. So we go back in the tapes and what we found is we have a Gordon Lightfoot reel. It's pretty short, maybe 20, 25 minutes, five songs. But it's from just a few nights later. And there's no record of this reel anywhere on the internet. You know, it exists only in the archive. And what had happened was Gord was in town for a festival and he came back to the carousel to spontaneously to play this set. And so we were able to piece together what that reel was in the context of the uh, Johnny Cash. Yeah, he, uh, he was opening for Steve Miller, unannounced opener. Basically, he showed up with his guitar and they said, hey, you want to play a set? He said, sure. The and fucking 60s, man. Fair taped it. Yeah. <laughs> Anything could happen. Yes. Oh, my goodness. What? This is why we have the rock and roll we have, because these things happened <laughs> and they changed and impacted the direction and the influences. Holy cow. These stories are And thank God for the, uh, for the documenters like Bear and all the other people who are out there keeping track of the history and recording as much as they could. And that brings me around to something about this Johnny Cash recording. It's at a unique time, right around the time when he was doing Folsom and San Quentin. And those performances, especially Folsom, famously full of fire and, you know, piss and vinegar. He was like on fire. Early one morning while making the rounds I took a shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down I went right home and I went to bed I stuck at love and 44 beneath my head and the atmosphere at the carousel, I don't know if it was just because it was in San Francisco, different place, different time, different setting. Maybe he was a little catching the room, aromatic buzz from everything. I'm not sure. Or maybe it's just the way that Bear captured stuff. But the feel on this album, at Live at Carousel, is markedly different than the other releases recorded just, you know, within days in either direction around this show. And yet it has a different feel. Here's another song from the show that we did at Folsom Prison. It's in the album that's out this week. It's called The Cocaine Blues. Early one morning while making the rounds, took a shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down. Went right home and I went to bed. I stuck at love and 44 beneath my head. Pete, can you put any kind of a finger on why that is? It's absolutely remarkable. I mean, as Hawk said earlier, Bear called his tapes his sonic journals. He wanted to record what did it sound like to be in the room that night. And when we were in pre-production on this album, we pulled Folsom, we pulled San Quentin, pulled copies of vinyl, and uh, we spun them to say, what did they sound like? And we were looking to say, did we have a different set list? 
right? Because we didn't want to bore the fans. And we didn't have a, the same set list. But the other thing we found was we sound different. So as amazing as Folsom is, what makes the sound amazing is the energy and uh, the play between Johnny and the prison cafeteria. But the sound is yeah. sort of like a prison cafeteria. You go to San Quentin on the other end, and at that point, the label knew they had a hit. So remember, Folsom, Johnny's at a low point in his career when he records it. Neither he nor anyone has any idea that thing is going to be a hit. That's a passion project. But you go to San Quentin, they knew what they had, so they sent out the A-team. They produced the hell out of that record. It sounds amazing, but it's got some, let's call it sonic mascara on it. You know, there's some editorial choices they make in production. Now, finally, we get to have Bears recording in between that, the Sonic Journal. What did it actually sound like? To hear Johnny in 1968, not only that, what did it sound like to be in the room of a small club? You know, if you go to a lot of shows over the years, and I think most of you have been to many, you eventually get one of those special moments where you get to see a hero in a small hall, right? Like, you know, I once saw Dave Matthews with a dozen other people in the room right before his big label hit. Well, that's sort of what this Johnny is. It's 700 people in a room that holds 3,000. And what you hear him say from the stages this is from the album that's out next week wholesome prison you know so you're hearing him before he's about to become johnny cash the giant again for the second time you also document a moment with june who was usually like bright nebulant in her onstage persona where she's kind of addressing the crowd apologizing for a misunderstanding about the tickets about whether mother maybell or other carters were supposed to be there and her tone is more conciliatory towards the hippies who were there the folkies who were there that were upset about it than it was about just making a pronouncement you could tell she was really not happy about the misunderstanding and, and that's the, kind of the the character i guess that's set in this release which the songs are great the performances are amazing and he did he captured it wonderfully including moments like that yeah it's funny Rooney stanley starfinder uh, the president of Owsley stanley foundation bear's son his mom was at the show and before we released this before we sort of dived in very deep on the tapes she told me the story about june apologizing to the crowd that was her memory from 50 plus years later <laughs> was how gracious she was in her apology and just such a, an impression that she made on everybody with her warmth and her authenticity. Thank you. He's, he's still swallowing. <laughs> so I'll take just a minute to do a little something for you. Uh, if some of you people came in late tonight, I'm sorry. Uh, that my mother, Maybelle Carter, and my sisters Helen and Anita aren't with us. There was a misunderstanding some way, and some people got the impression they were supposed to be here, but they weren't really supposed to be here, so they're not. It's, it's why they're not here. <laughs> At any rate, the songs that I've sung down through the years lots of times have been the songs of the old original Carter family. And uh, in the past, uh, that's... Well, thank you very much for remembering. <laughs> You know, we talk a lot about the man in black's authenticity and the way that he owned his persona and the personas of the characters. But she certainly got that as well. And it was amazing to listen to the tapes and then hear her exact words after hearing Roni tell me about this is what she remembered from that show and how gracious she was. Wow. What moment of the Carousel show is the highlight for each of you? So for me, it's the back-to-back -back Dylan songs without a question. So 
Johnny Cash had a standard touring show. He called it the Johnny Cash Show. Different than the TV show that was right around the corner. It was the Johnny Cash Show. And when we first took the tapes to John Carter Cash at the Cash Cabin, he looked at the set list. And the first thing he said was, this is not the Johnny Cash Show. It's a different set list. And what we think he was doing was playing a different set for this hippie audience. Johnny was by no means a hippie, but... He was an activist. I mean, he played for prisoners. He played for, he wrote songs about Native Americans. He, he sung for the working man and the outsider. Mm-hmm. And those are the sorts of songs he put into this set list. Most of all, Bob Dylan. So he right, plays right. One Too Many Mornings and Don't Think Twice It's All Right. Don't Think Twice It's All Right. He knew pretty well. He had played that a bunch. And he kills it on this. But guess what? By surrounding it with guess things happen that way, another thoughtful song, and then give my love to Rose, it is definitely a reach out to the hippie crowd. That's the thing I kept thinking as I was listening in the songs, the set list. And and it's funny that his son said that's not a Johnny Cash set list. Yeah. And to clarify, he meant that very literally. Like there was a, um, you know, sort of a predetermined set list. There's certainly Johnny's songs, but, you know, he had picked and chosen carefully. So One Too Many Mornings, that's a real rarity on this one. And it's just beautifully performed. And a couple years, actually just a little bit later, he would record it with Bob Dylan during the Nashville Skyline session. But this version is really, by today's standards, it's like that naked version that people enjoy so much. It's, um, I love it. I really stripped down. I will do that one for you. First here's a... do to plug in to help you maybe they're hearing this podcast somewhere around the country or they're in another part of the world how can people donate to help and how can they reach out if they have services that they can offer well we're pretty accessible you could send us a, a personal message on facebook you know you can reach out to us at info at owsleystanley.org and we tend to be pretty responsive you know we have a number of different ways to support us of course the easiest way to support us is to buy the cds buy the releases you know these are expensive to make the proceeds our portion of the proceeds goes back into the preservation effort and making sure that more releases can come out of the archive so if you like what you're hearing the best way to support it is to buy it and spread the word you know we are constantly looking for talented volunteers we're all volunteer you know as as you mentioned at the beginning of the show we do this for love so you know depending on what your particular skill set is whether it's web design whether it's marketing if you want to pitch in let us know reach out we're terrible at delegating but we need to get better at it especially as we get especially as we get bigger 
The um, way in the front door again is Owsley. It's at O-W-S-L-E-Y, stanleyfoundation.org. And you can find out about everything that we've been talking about here. One of the things I learned, guys, was that the carousel, I'm not sure what the date was when it changed over, became the Fillmore. So when you're talking about that gave me the idea that the hippie vibe might be for real, not just in my, you know, aging hippie head, you know? Yeah, it wasn't too much after this show. I think it uh, changed hands by July, probably early July of 68. Well, go to the website, folks, if you're intrigued by what we're talking about or interested in the Johnny Cash release or any of the others. I just tell you to go to the website and check it out. It's all there for you to check out. And I also like that some of the artwork is uh, original poster work from back in the day, man. Yeah, and a special shout out, too, to uh, Susan Archie, who did the album cover for us and actually all of the booklet design and the artwork inside. Susan's a, a three-time Grammy Award winner for her album art. She's actually inducted last year into the the Rock and Roll Album Art Hall of Fame. And we've been working with her conceptually on this since 2018. And the designs have evolved with the narrative as we built all the storylines together. And obviously, when you first look at it, the idea is to sort of convey this trip or this journey that Johnny and June are about to head out on. The, the newlyweds a month after their wedding going off into a sort of psychedelic sunset. And then as you go through the booklet, it becomes more and more trippy as those, those flowers on the cover start to morph into psychedelic eyeballs and neurons and <laughs> and, and jellyfish and you're gonna, um, you know, you're gonna get people thinking of rumors about this night you know yeah. hey what was going on there at the pre-fillmore you know yeah. <laughs> well 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 we, well we should say for the record johnny cash had established his sobriety by this point and there's no indication that he departed from that during the show but it's fun in to any imagine. manner even with bear there on sound okay i got you yeah, yeah. <laughs> clear. but it's fun to imagine the aesthetics of the man in black on one night out of a long career going down this psychedelic day glow tie-dye path. And it's sort of that marriage of cultures that I think Susan did a brilliant job of capturing in the liner notes, right down to sort of the weathered pages, you know, the old newsprint pages and sort of conveying this, you know, we don't want to oversell it. This is a data point on a crossroads where you have country rock coming out one side and outlaw country coming out on the other side. They weren't there yet. The man in black wasn't the man in black yet, but they were on that road. And, you know, next year you have actually a year and a half later, you've got American Beauty and Working Man's Dead with the Grateful Dead really go all in on a country sound uh, or country influence sound you know jerry garcia said we wanted to do the, those albums in the style of uh, buck owens they were listening to this music and taking these messages and applying them and you know actually it's a really cool thing you talk about sort of surprises in the vault dan hicks and the hot licks opened up for johnny on this night at the carousel ballroom and we have love dan hicks yeah they're awesome and uh wow. love the Charla- charlatans too his you know his, his original band some might argue the very first psychedelic band although the last they were band, part of the original scene yeah. with the family yeah. and everything right they were the last to get a record deal but the first right. really to pioneer that sound the very next uh, actually it was about two or three days later maybe that weekend show 
was the Charlatans' last concert as the Charlatans. And Dan Hicks announced from the stage, we learned this song last week from Johnny Cash, and they launch into Folsom Prison Blues. Wow. Um, <laughs> so what better example of sort of cross-pollination, you know, that, again, thanks to Bear for having the tapes running, and hopefully we'll get that album out someday. I'm sure you will. Wherever he is in the cosmic universe, man, thank you, Bear. That is an amazing collection that's building, too. I'm looking at the, the list of shows with people like the Allman Brothers. You mentioned the the Yorman and Jack show, the new riders of the Purple Sage, Doc and Roll, all different kinds of stuff. And then you add Johnny and June and Commander Co. Cody and Tim Buckley. I heard you guys on a, an interview talking about the Buckley release. And Pete, you mentioned that you're from Philadelphia or you grew up in Philly and that's where we're based. You know, what a great music town. I grew up on WMMR and WISP and, you know, it was that progressive radio format where you'd hear a little bit of everything on the air. And um, Bears Archive is like that. You know, you've got bluegrass and Indian classical right alongside you know, you're a psychedelic giant. It's great. Wow. What a long, strange trip, right? Pierre Robert, who I know you know as well, because you mentioned him in that interview, yeah. is celebrating his 40th anniversary at MMR th- this past month or so. Crazy, man. What a long, strange trip for him, dude. Totally. Yeah. There's a dead end who's earned his stripes, right? <laughs> Hawk, did Bear continue a relationship with Johnny Cash after this? Did they continue to like talk, hang out, do stuff together over the years? Or was it one of those, hey, we did this recording and it was great to cross paths with you? We're not aware of any additional contact with Johnny directly, although we did find in one of the reels W.S. Holland's address. Apparently W.S. Holland wanted a copy of the tapes. I don't know whether Owsley ever sent him a copy, but it's clear that they were communicating and that there was some intention to stay in touch. Well, gentlemen, you have a large project ahead of you, even though you've done so much already to preserve these tapes and this archive. Kudos to you both and to everyone who's involved. We're also going to talk to June and John's son, John Carter, and talk to him about this release and some of the other things about that amazing pair that became his parents. Just shortly after all this was recorded, you know, it's kind of funny how life rolls. When you start getting down the line a little bit, you start doing chronology and when things happened in all ways since 1968. I'll just say that. So thank you both for all the good you do for keeping Bears work and good music in the universe. Well, thank you. Just really glad to, you know, people seem to enjoy it. And thank you for helping to spread the word. All right, Hawk, I'm going to let you pick one from the album. We're going to play it to the break here on the Imbalance History of Rock and roll podcast all right well i will uh pick long black veil because i love what luther's doing over there that delicate chipping and chugging over in the right chain thanks guys thanks a lot guys thank you this is fun thank you ten years ago on a cold dark night someone was killed beneath the town hall lights there were few at the scene but they all agreed that the slayer who ran looked a lot like me. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave in the night wind's way. Well, 
around. It gets to be the holiday season, Marcus. You know, you start thinking about gathering with friends, and in a lot of cases, over a pint or over Pennsylvania distilled spirits or some wine or cider. Gee, where could we go? How about our favorite? It's Crooked Eye Brewery. Right in the heart of Hatboro. It's a great place to share memories with friends and hear live music as well. Speaking of live music, you can find out who's coming to play when on their Facebook page. And as always, the beers are continually being updated. As well as your favorites on tap at Crooked Eye. Right there in the heart of Hatboro and in the heart of Delco out by you. Yeah, a few miles down the road from me at Jamie's House of Music, where you can see live music and grab a pint of your favorite Crooked Eye beer. And if you're going into the brewery location in Hatboro and you have a Crooked Eye fan in your life, stop by, have a pint, buy a gift card for the holidays, and stock up on Crooked Eye merchandise. We know the holidays are always crazy, so if you want to slow down, make sure you stop by and make it Crooked Eye. Welcome back to the second half of this week's episode. And thanks again to the Hawk and Pete Bell from the Owsley Foundation for talking about this gem of a rare Johnny Cash live recording from the Carousel Ballroom done by the legendary bear Sherman Owsley in 1968, right before Folsom Prison was released and right before the Carousel Ballroom became the Fillmore West. We're going to jump back into it with John Carter Cash, son of Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash. God bless them both. I love your mom and dad to death and have a chance to talk with you about this album, which they made a long time, gosh, before you were born by a few years. And it brings us together today on the podcast, John. And we're pretty excited to first off to have a member of the Carter Cash clan, you know, on, but also to talk about this album, which I never knew existed. So Marcus and I were talking about it. We kind of want to know first, when did you first hear about this album? album that was recorded at the carousel and all that the alzi stanley foundation approached us but you know the thing is is that there's so many live recordings out there my dad had quality live recordings made through the years but he had a standard of a show that he would do with not a lot of deviation sometimes he would add songs but most shows not a lot of different songs added and mostly the same band you know with each performance and so what you had was with most of these recordings was various masterpieces that looked a lot like the set list for either Folsom Prison or San Quentin. But you know, those shows were just as powerful as Folsom Prison and San Quentin, some of them, but not a lot of deviation from what was already an established masterpiece recording, right? And so we don't go out digging, right? We don't go out like calling everybody's brother and saying, I heard so-and-so had a recording. If people come to us, we'll pay attention, but we don't go out digging a whole lot. But this came to our, our knowledge that this recordings existed. And I don't think dad, I think he might've known that they were recording, sure. Uh, you know, that's the way he would have been. Said, sure guys, that sounds great. But he wouldn't have thought much past it. And I think he would have been excited once he, you know, the history had been told, right? You know, if he knew that it was there. But, you know, this is different, this recording, in, in that there's some different song choices. The band is stripped down. It's just Dad and the Tennessee Three. No Carl Perkins, no Statler Brothers, no Carter family. It's just Dad and Mom and the Tennessee Three. And, you know, he takes chances. He does different songs. He does, you know, some Bob Dylan and a great version right. of, of Ira Hayes also. I love the version of Ira Hayes that's on here. Ira Ira Hayes, Ira Hayes, call him drunken Ira Hayes, he 
don't answer anymore Not the whiskey drinking Indian Nor the Marine that went to war Gather round me people There's a story I would tell About a brave young Indian That we should remember well From the tribe of the Pima Indians A proud and peaceful band Farm the Phoenix Valley in Arizona land. Down their ditches for a thousand years, the waters grew Irish people's crops till the white man stole the water rights and the sparkling water stopped. Now, Ira's folks were hungry and their land grew crops of weeds. But when war came, Ira volunteered and forgot the white man's greed. You mentioned. Yeah. That no Carter family, and uh, at one point your mom steps to the mic and talks to the crowd about. Sorry if there was a misunderstanding. There was somebody that got it wrong on the billing, and some people misunderstood uh-huh. who was coming. Right, right. That's a real personal moment in the middle of this amazing yeah. concert. Drama. Well, that's how she was. She was always very personal. Well, sorry, I just wanted to apologize for Maybell or whatever she said. You know, <laughs> that's it. They were just connected, down to earth people. But yeah, you know, I mean, and the Sonics—they're they're different. You know, you've got Dad on one side, you've got the rest of the band on the other, and boy, you feel like you're in the room. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's probably as close as it could come to what it felt like to be in the room. You know, anyway, it just—it was different. And uh, personally, I thought it was something that there are fans out there that would enjoy and see the significance of. And I also believe that my dad would like it. I can't guarantee it, but I believe he would have. It seemed also that the vibe was different in the room. They were playing in more of a laid back style versus like Folsom and San Quentin, where they're just tearing it up for those cats behind bars. Yeah. And they're, they're pretty laid back. You know, it's at the end of the tour. It's like a tag on day a little extra money for the pocket of the musicians and and probably not a lot of money period for, but but it just it was something that dad i'm so glad he did the, it's the only time they ever played at, at that venue what would become the fillmore west you know and i mean I, I was excited when i when i heard it because you know i grew up listening to a lot of stuff that was recorded at the fillmore west and so you know everything from black sabbath to jefferson airplane but it's like i'm you know looking back over all that now it's like you know i think it's a really interesting piece of history because dad he fit in with every walk of life. He fit in with the hippies. He could go to Vietnam and sing mm-hmm. for the, the troops. He could come back home and, and go to the White House and sing a protest song mm-hmm. when he'd been asked to say something else, not lose face and get invited back. Now that's that's pretty intense. You know, I mean, I don't know another American that could do that. I can't think of one, John. And your dad was an amazing force. He had that ability to see another's point of view and incorporate it into his own and move forward. And yeah. it must have been open-minded. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Open-minded. yeah. Listen, my dad was just a little younger and it took him a long time to open his mind up the way your dad was doing for all of us back in the sixties. When I first heard of him and your mom, your dad grew up in the South too, which is a whole yeah. lot different than out far West and up here North where we are in Philadelphia. And there was a different mindset back then. 
there, but did he, when you were children, talk about activism and talk about these personal beliefs and have discussions about it as well as talking he, about music? He, more, he, he lived by example. He never said, and this is the way that you need to feel. He never made any sort of racist remarks. He never looked at people as being different than just humans. And he never saw division between himself and other groups, whether they be like, a, you know, the hippies or, you know, or the, the politicians. He, he knew people but as they were as people. He didn't put his own standards on them and expect them to live up to something. And that's sort of the way that he lived his life. He wasn't political. He, he wasn't a, a Democrat or a Republican. He was an American. And he believed that we should be respectful of those who are out there, you know, fighting for our country. And he may have leaned a little on paper towards the left side more than the, the right. But still at the same time, you know, he did candidacy support stuff for the Republican governor of Tennessee and also for Al Gore later in his life. So, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. because he knew them as people, because he appreciated them as human beings, mm -hmm. but but that wasn't what he was about in the first place. It wasn't about politics. It wasn't about making you see things the way he saw things. He wasn't that. He was about saying, this is something to be aware of. This is an injustice that's in our nation. And these are people that don't have very many people singing their song or pointing out the fact that they're still great injustice at Pine Ridge Indian Reservation you know, in the late 60s, right. and it is today. Yeah. And so, but he would point out those things but, to people in a way that wouldn't set people off, that wouldn't make anyone angry and would just, you know. Make them think. Yeah. He made people and think, John. If he presented that way to you as children, it had to have gone a long way on all of you moving forward and keeping his message, but not only his message, but the message of humanity and yeah. goodness to move forward. It's something that I, I said a couple of times, Dad, we were walking New York City, big, long Johnny Cash black trench coat going down the street huge big leather boots and i'm walking behind him and then he sort of stays back and he goes back behind me and my mother was she was i don't know where she was close by walking probably looking in a shop window and i looked back behind me and dad had knelt down beside a, a vagrant and was tucking something in his pocket and i looked over and i saw that he was tucking a hundred dollar bill in that vagrant's pocket and he was passed out and there it was also i saw that there was a small new testament bible that had fallen out of that man's pocket when dad had had gone to do that and he looked at me and he said don't you tell anybody you saw me doing that and that was true he didn't do it so i would see him he didn't do it to say you need to do this this is the way you need to be he would have rather i not seen him. He would have rather no one have seen him do that. And so he, even though he said not to tell anybody, I do now, and I'll tell folks now, because I think it's an important lesson to be learned in our world. The greatest reward may not be because you appreciate me as a better human being. Right. And I think that's that's what I learned from him. I learned a lot of different things from him. I'm not chopping onions here right now at all. Holy <laughs> cow. Oh, I'm not yeah, crying. I'm moment. not crying. You're crying. Getting yeah, back to stuff. the yeah. music, when you were approached with the Carousel show, had they already baked the tapes and mixed it, or had they reached out to you when they me. found it, reached out to y'all, uh -huh. your foundation, when they found it and said, hey, look what we found, look what we have, are you interested? We're going to bake it, we're going to yeah. reproduce it, yeah. or did they wait until it was yeah. done and say, hey, here, uh, here's what we have? It wasn't mixed. I mean, it sounded great. It was, I think I don't think it was finalized, though, but, but they had already been baked and everything, and I, I mean, knowing them, they the tapes themselves were probably stored really good anyway. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we have tapes that, that we've stored 
that were stored for years okay that still have absolutely no problems of course you do you bake it i mean trust mm-hmm. me well but, but yeah that it was all baked and I'm, I'm sure it was in good shape but close enough to being ready to go because if, if i'd have thought you know oh well this needs a lot of work or this, this you know whatever then it probably wouldn't have gone down that path had to you know this kind of thing you sort of have to accept that is what it is and live performances and their essence of definition are flawed right well the foundation has been clear we had hawk on and pete bell was on with us talking about their mission and it seems to me that a john and june carter cash album could go a long way towards raising the kind of money that they're trying to raise for the foundation to bake and mix and save and preserve countless other tapes that owsley made yeah i'm hoping that's what happens because you know i mean defining time here you know with the 20th century pretty important 100 years dare i say john would love it Mm-hmm. Your, your dad he would love like yeah, yeah. let's let's help yeah. save owsley's tape he yeah. was a nice guy he, yeah he, oh know, yeah that kind no of he thing. would he would he would have and he would appreciate it for what it was mm-hmm. but yeah i mean we look back over the last 150 years and realize how many film reels are, are lost mm-hmm. early films wow oh, yeah. we, so we're just finding out about how bad yeah. Right? yeah it's just a matter of matter of time whether that be from just the decay through the years and it's like you know they just don't exist anymore you know and so hopefully people will get a hold of that and realize that, that all those millions that were made, some of it needs to go towards the right preservation societies. Indeed. And that's, that's what I see happening with Owsley Stanley. Well, we're committed towards digital preservation of a lot of things and stories yeah. mm-hmm. and podcasting is part of that, I think. And the internet has certainly spawned a lot of knowledge and information available, like something I found out that I didn't know you were involved in the I'll Be Me story with Glenn Campbell. I didn't know you were part uh-huh. of that production. One of our favorites here on the podcast, and he's in a special category for me as a kid growing up because I had a whole bunch of his records. Yeah, Glenn was it, it was my favorite music when I was a boy. And then then I was oh. around him as a, as a person also. You know, he'd be, <laughs> come over for dinner and whatnot. And he and Dad were friends all through Glenn's years, whether it was the, the crazier years or the more focused. You mm-hmm. know, that me and Glenn were, were friends through it all. Was Glenn equally as crazy as your father during those years? Yeah, it's like apples and oranges, though, you know. <laughs> They were were different. Yeah. (laughs) They were different folks. But yeah, you know, I don't know how much they quote unquote partied together. Yeah, they had their wilder years together or or apart. With um, the Sherman Owsley Foundation, did you ever get to meet him or work with him or cross paths with him during your early years in music before he. I just don't remember. I lived this existence until I was 25 years old that I look back on sometimes and I just go, I can't believe it. Like, Like the other day, my sister Carlene had some pictures and it was her record release party in New York City and this would have been like 79, 78 something in there. And I I look at this picture and it's myself and Carlene, I believe, and Andy Warhol. And I go, I go, that's that weird guy I met that day when I was a kid. <laughs> so oh, you know, and, and literally, it's like, yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff has happened to me in life. Johnny Knoxville called me a few years back and said, "Hey, man, it's PJ. Do you remember me?" I'm like, "Yeah, man, you're Johnny Knoxville." He's like, "No, we used to play video games together all the time when we were kids." I'm like, wow. "Oh, that's you, wow. right?" Wow. And so, I mean, there's a lot of that in life. It, it was later yeah. on before I even recognized some of the the magic folks that I got to be around that I took for granted when I was younger. Yeah, but you've written about a lot of things. Uh, yeah, you're quite an accomplished author as well. Yeah, uh, I wrote a, my mother's biography. 
biography, Anchored in Love, a coffee table book biography, my father's and the Cash family called The House of Cash, and then uh, have three children's books and a novel, fantasy novel. So, and uh, my wife, Anna Christina Cash, is a wonderful, accomplished singer. But anyway, she's telling me all the time I need to work on my, my memoir. And the stories are there. But uh, I need to start uh, working on a memoir. I plan on doing it anyway. I bet I still got a lot more to tell here. Do you have any more you want to accomplish? Anything on your bucket list that you have not accomplished yet? I look back and I want to be remembered as a good father. I want to be there for my children. I want to carry that on. You know, I don't necessarily feel like I have to be the top producer in Nashville or win a bunch of Grammys or whatever. It's nice to have accolades or whatever. But I want to make music that matters. I want to keep doing that. Worked more with Loretta Lynn than I have any other artist in my career. She's mostly retired now. But, you know, I've I've recorded 110, 115 recordings on her, different songs, uh, you know, within a 10-year period or so. I want to keep making music that matters and keep sharing the love where it matters. John, we're so happy to have you on the podcast to talk about at the carousel, but I really feel like we could have you on for an hour just talking about what you've done and, yeah. and all your <laughs> ties and, and the more of the, uh, the Carter family history because you know it all, haven't been in the middle of it your whole life. I would love to have you back, and thanks so much for taking time. Yeah, for, for sure. No, it's great talking to you guys. Till the next time we crack the mics at the Dark Duck Studios, I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. This is the imbalance history of rock and roll.